to all of our fundamentalists. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite brown babes, breaking down taboos and dissecting Desi culture across the diaspora. I'm Faiza. And I'm Mahek. And today we're so beyond thrilled to have with us, uh, as part of our ongoing series on Desi's rising up in the progressive politics movement, we have with us Suraj Patel, who's an attorney, activist, business leader, and lecturer on business ethics, LOL, at New York University, who worked for President Obama. He most recently ran for U.S. Congress in New York City in what was the closest primary election in the 2020 cycle. Suraj, welcome. We're so excited to have you and to speak with you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, and I am excited to be here as well. Great. Um I want to jump right in because I've got to tell you, you have like the most fascinating career trajectory out of anyone I've come across in the recent or in recent history. Um, You've touched on so many interesting things in your path, working for the Obama administration, working as an adjunct professor of ethics in the corporate world, whatever that means. And we'd love to get into that with you being a progressive candidate in politics. And now the co-founder and leader of two organizations dedicated to building and uplifting uh, civic leaders and progressive leaders of tomorrow. So I'd like to start with what's the common thread in this trajectory? What has driven you? What continues to drive you in the work you do? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the funny answer to that is that, uh, there isn't as much of a common thread, I think, as most people think of these things as linear. Most people think of themselves as, and and by the way, this is true in politics. I think, um, some people wake up, uh, grow up, grow up wanting to be in politics and plan their life accordingly, step by step by step, um, to preparing to run for office, running for office, running for the next office, um, you know, through and through. Uh, that's not me, turns out. Clearly, I would have come up with a much more linear path um, to be doing this, uh, but but I did not. And I think that's partially because of uh, my background. Obviously, like you all and like most of our listeners, I imagine, um, are, you know, my parents came here with uh, no plan other than looking for opportunity in the 70s and about a decade before I was born. And similarly, I mean, they bounced around all across the country in, in various, you know, business propositions and projects. We started a Mexican restaurant in Mississippi. We leased a couple of motels in, in New Jersey that um, before I was born, eventually finding success building and running, um, you know, mid-scale and economy hotels in the Midwest. And I think it's that flexibility. It's that fundamental watching your parents sacrifice so much, um, you know, put a real emphasis on education and work you know, we grew up sweeping parking lot floors and, and I have three brothers, so I say we a lot, but um, uh, sweeping parking lot floors and filling vending machines and doing all this kind of stuff around our um, family business as we grew it growing up. And so for me, I think like there was no guidebook. There was no, you know, here's what you do next. You go get SAT tutoring and then you apply to a great school and then you go get this internship and then you go work in X, Y, or Z corporate law or whatever. None of those things were told to us. And I think that's because we are, to some extent, um, you know, all, all of us are immigrants and, and there's something disruptive about that too. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of what makes my career arc look so interdisciplinary because it is. Um, and I actually, you know, taking a little breather right now, having just run 
a very intense political race than having worked to defeat a very horrible president um, in Donald Trump. I'm here in February trying to think to myself, you know, man, four years have gone by really fast since Trump was elected. And, and like so many people of our generation, I said enough is enough. Like we've got to do something. We formed an organization you alluded to called the Arena to get young people to run for office um, and to support them. This was in, in the literally in the days and weeks after Trump's election. A group of us got together and said, you know what, like we, we have to get on the playing field, we have to get in the arena, which is why the organization is called the arena. Um, and it's just been nonstop since, whether that was organizing and helping candidates to defeat Trump or organizing and working on defeating um, a corporate hack money backed Democrat here in New York who normalized a lot of the things that, you know, Trump seized upon. And I was like, you know, it's, it's been a long time doing that. I personally will tell you, uh, if we want to get intimate in this uh, conversation, that one of the things I'm stepping back to think about is I used to want to write, um, I used to teach, I still teach uh, business ethics. It's a, like a public policy program for um, crash course for business school students. I, um, you know, like commercial uh, ventures like restaurants, hospitality businesses. All those kinds of things. Um, and, and I think the last three years have really narrowed me into a very small geographic area of New York's 12th congressional district and running for office and knowing the names of party leaders and labor leaders and, and city council people and stuff that I had never I had no idea of. And a little bit of me wants to take a step back and be like, whoa, whoa, the world is a lot bigger uh, than just uh, just a few of these things. And so I think that's what I'm currently doing right now. Um, you know, and, and thinking about these things, but to your point, um, you know, the Trump election did a lot, I think, to make us say uh, it's no longer okay to be on the sidelines. I think the day after the Trump um, inauguration, I did the Women's March. The week after the Trump inauguration in 2016, I was at JFK as a volunteer attorney um, for the ACLU when the Muslim ban came down. And um, it was moments like that. We're never going to forget them. And it's a little traumatic to come out of it, you know, and I think a lot of us need a collective breath. Um, right now. So I think you have such an interesting perspective as somebody who was in the Obama administration, um, because when Obama came into office, he was very progressive, right? Now, a kind of history looks back at him as being part of the establishment. But Obama came in, he was very progressive. Then we like digressed 17 centuries uh, to the Trump years. Um, and here we are with Biden and Harris. To the extent you are able to be candid about this, and we love, we love the tea. Um, what, what was that, what was watching that like for you? You know, I, I think for a lot of us who didn't have um, direct political experience, certainly not within a previous presidential administration, when the 2020 election came, it was anybody but Trump. I don't give a shit. My daughter before Trump, you know what I mean? Um, but for somebody who's worked mm -hmm. in the inner machinations of the White House, what were your thoughts on Biden? What were your thoughts on the Democratic presidential primary? And what are your thoughts now? I mean, I got to say, you know, and this is going to be surprising, but I just one of the first times I ever did a political uh, you know, job was doing advance um, for the Obama campaign in 2008. And one of the first bosses that I had to some extent. Um, because once he was announced the ticket was Joe Biden. 
And, you know, when you're an advanced person, you're traveling around the country seven days ahead of the candidate um, preparing with a small team, like 10 person team the entire day for that candidate, wherever they, whenever they arrive. And I think one of the first things I did was do a Biden rally at a horse farm in Ocala, Florida. I literally was out there at five, four thirty in the morning in the dark, um, you know, prepping for that day's event and rally and working with um, the cable company to drop a T3 phone line down, you know, to be able to um, uh, beam out the, the thing from a horse farm. I stepped on so much horse shit that day uh, in my suit. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a really unique thing to be doing for a guy who's in law school at NYU and is trying to work for a campaign. But um, it was Joe Biden. And he was so genuine and such a warm, loving person. Um, and I actually drove Dr. Jill Biden across Missouri uh, in that campaign one time when she did a couple events and she's so down to earth. So I personally love um, Joe and Jill Biden. And for me, the primary, similarly, though I have preferences politically that probably put me in more of a Elizabeth Warren lane, um, you know, was thrilled to see the outcome, knowing that I thought Joe Biden had a really, really strong shot of beating Donald Trump. And I guess the outcome of the election shows us that perhaps he might've been the only one who could have beaten Donald Trump um, in this cycle. So thank God that it worked out. And there's nothing but encouraging policy coming out of that White House. I think this will be, go down as the most progressive administration in American history, um, you know, at least since FDR. I think that the plans in the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill are so far reaching, not getting enough coverage. Now, I'll tell you guys a little bit about myself. Obviously, I ran, I ran a campaign premised on bold, innovative policy. I consider myself a policy wonk. Um, I'm a lawyer. I teach at NYU. I teach policy stuff. I you know, have a master's in public policy. And so we wrote a lot of policy. We wrote 171 pages of original policy on my congressional campaign, which is really rare. Most people that run for Congress either pick their lane, their progressive lane, and you copy the platform, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, blah, 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 blah. Or you're you know, running as a, as a moderate, whatever, right? For us, I thought in the most educated district of America, which is ours, we could run an intellectual campaign. One of the op-eds I wrote and one of the policies we wrote is called the Family Opportunity Guarantee. And that policy called, it had five prongs from paid family medical leave to a public option for childcare and all that. The main prong, was something we call the universal child allowance, a $500 a month payment, direct payment to every family with a child up to age of five, and then $350 a month after that until 18. The plan would half child poverty in the first year alone in the United States of America. 27 other countries have such a direct payment transfer, and their po child poverty rates are significantly less. Child poverty has an insane cost long-term in the form of lower, everything from lower testing scores to educational attainment to higher incarceration rates and everything. And the reason we chose that policy and championed it is because it was universal and because it has some cross appeal. And just a few weeks ago, Mitt Romney published an almost identical policy. And congressional Democrats are currently writing up in the stimulus bill for one year at least, um, a child tax credit. So. I'm taking a little bit of a victory lap. My team is taking a little bit of a victory lap and we're fucking thrilled. Sorry, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that, but here we are. <laughs> um, I'm thrilled that, uh, that we're finally here. And I think similarly, we wrote a whole policy on, on uh, scientific innovation and discovery that you know, at the height of the space race, we spent 
of our GDP on federal research and development. Um, today, that number is like 0.3%. And this is before the pandemic. And I said to guard against future pandemics, to guard against um, climate change, we're going to need to out-innovate uh, the rest of the world and frankly, innovate for the world so we can transfer our information along to other people. And I think, I hope that that makes it into the next infrastructure and green energy bill as well. So I think my job now is to keep pushing some of these policies that don't have the same necessarily left-right axis that I think isn't is broken as a as a paradigm looking at sort of how our politics actually work. Um, and and I think that's great. And so I guess there's a long-winded way of saying, I mean, I think that what's coming out of the Biden administration is currently some of the most innovative and bold stuff um, for, for problems that no one had an opportunity to pass in the past. And I'm making this prediction right here, right now. I think Joe Biden will be our uh, version of Ronald Reagan. I think that he will end up in the presidency with a far-reaching you know, impact of realigning American politics. I think that um, by the end of this year and the beginning of next year, we're going to end up with a 6 7 8% GDP growth, which will make him immensely popular going into the midterms, having passed $4 trillion worth of either uh, you know stimulus in this $2 trillion bill, and then probably infrastructure and, and climate change stuff. And that far-reaching impact is going to have a massive, I think, impact on innovation in our society and, and hopefully for the better. And so while it's easy to be pessimistic coming out of the Trump administration, it's easy to be pessimistic seeing that we just had a fucking uh, insurrection and that some states are currently already rolling back vote by mail and uh, voting issues. I think we are in the driver's seat. And so long as we keep leading with our convictions that um, progressives and Democrats should be uh, encouraged with what I think is going to happen over the next decade or so. It's actually really interesting because um, for this politics series, we've interviewed a couple of folks who've run campaigns, progressive grassroots campaigns. First, we interviewed Assemblyman Zoran Mamdani, who actually mentioned what you're talking about is that this Biden administration gives us room to breathe and room to do the work that's necessary, especially in light of the Trump administration. And we also spoke with Justine Kaur, who is running for city council, another first timer. Um, but you actually ran twice. You ran in 2018 and then in 2020. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your lessons learned between those two campaigns. Um, why did you decide to run again? And then I'd love to get into what happened in 2020, because that election in particular for you was, um, or the primary was particularly challenging and pretty contentious. Um, good question. So 2018, like I mentioned, I think coming out of the Trump election and organizing thousands of, of um, people across the country and in New York to uh, both run for office, but to support people running for office, to support quote unquote non-traditional candidates, people of color, um, LGBTQ individuals, uh, uh, women, frankly, running for office is what was our goal. And in that process, I realized to myself, you know, look, we are battling Republicans across the country and need to take that back in 2018. But some of the uh, some of the things that caused the rise of Trump far predate Trump. And they're caused by Democrats in cases like Carolyn Maloney, for example, who are so woefully out of touch with um, what our you know, city and our country needs. And, and I think that I realized no one was challenging people like that. And these people were getting free passes running for reelection over and over unopposed with eight and seven percent turnouts and i said look we can engage and organize and get more people in interested in, in turning out and frankly 
there is no doubt that Carolyn Maloney has moved significantly to the left as a result of my two challenges against her, significantly. And it's clear, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, and, and so I think that it, even in loss, there's a lot of benefit to putting these people on notice that they don't get um, a free pass anymore. Um, so then in 2018, I will say this, we ran with an incredible amount of conviction and energy and boldness, uh, but we didn't know what we were doing in many cases. You know, no one's run a competitive primary before. Remember, that was the same time. I ran the same day as um, AOC. We campaigned together. I marched with her at Pride. We did fundraisers together um, when no one else in the city would in, even acknowledge her. Similarly, with a couple other challenges. But I will, you know, and so there was no, again, once again, there's no playbook. There's no roadmap. Um, what I knew we could do in 2020 was just do it a lot better. And a lot better we did in a sense that, you know, Remember, I think in almost any other given year, the way we ran our campaign, we made a million phone calls. We did 300,000 text message exchanges. We wrote 15,000 handwritten notes from people from all across the country who were volunteering or interning or working for our campaign. We even had a couple fellows um, who were in New Delhi who just found this campaign online and wanted to be part of it and were helping with phone calls and tech and things like that. So this was a multinational uh, campaign to some extent. And um, the fact that we got as close as we did is a wonder, considering I got coronavirus in March, about three months before uh, the election, that considering that the rules for voting changed 10 times in the weeks leading up, considering that we had a four-way race with two other candidates in the race who served to, by and large, you know, uh, siphon off enough votes to get Maloney to eke out just a few points victory. So, I mean, we learned a lot and I think we performed admirably well. I'm so proud of my team and the policies we wrote were, were incredible. I think um, it's just a matter of chipping away. Uh, and then to your point, contentious as hell. You know, we lost by a little over 2,000 votes out of 105,000 cast. What most people know that followed the race is that the voting for vote by mail took about three months. And in that, 12,500 or a full 25% of ballots were discarded that were sent by mail. Some because they didn't have a postmark, some because they didn't, people didn't sign on them and all those kinds of things. And we made a big, big amount of noise about that because a lot of those were from Brooklyn and Queens, communities of color and younger communities where we beat Maloney by 70 percentage points in some cases. And it's still a question as to whether if all the votes were counted properly, uh, you know, who would have come out ahead? On top of everything, when we sued the state of New York for to count some of those ballots and successfully, I might add, got a federal injunction to count a per small percentage of those ballots, we did, we got 49% of the vote in those, in those that were counted versus Maloney getting 19. And we also learned from testimony that the state of New York failed to send out 33,000 ballots um, to voters until the night before election day, meaning that those people never got a chance to vote. 60-some percent of those were bound for Brooklyn and Queens. Once again, areas that we do significantly better um, than, frankly, more progressives do significantly better than the establishment candidates do. So, of course, there's a lot to be done about that. And we made a lot of noise. I wrote an op-ed for Washington Post. Donald Trump mentioned the race like 10 times throughout the, including in the debate um, that he had with Joe Biden. But I think I'm also proud of the fact that by making that noise, by bringing this issue up in a you know, um, in, a, in a way that unfortunately obviously didn't work out for us, what it did do is provide a real cautionary tale for the fall. And the state of Pennsylvania 
uh, Supreme Court ruled that ballots can be accepted up to seven days after the election day, which think about Joe Biden's margin as those votes by mail came in over time and how he overtook the lead. The state of North Carolina, um, which, uh, you know, uh, changed its law to allow you, if you forgot to sign the envelope, to come back and sign that envelope, um, Georgia. And so I think we had far-reaching effects on um, the national national sort of uh, conversation around these issues. And I think that's, you know, I take a lot of um, solace in that as much as it's, you know, painful to think, okay, well, we, you know, obviously should have been, uh, you know, the beneficiaries of the work we did. I'm glad that at least you know, Joe Biden and, and, and Democrats were in many cases. And frankly, democracy was. Suraj, I'm going to word vomit like 80 different questions at you because I have so much that I want to ask you from all the things we've spoken about in the past 20 minutes. And I'll defer to you to order them in whichever order you want to. So my first question is, given the trajectory of events, what made you ultimately concede? Um Second question is, and you'll see some of these are related, some not at all. So literally word vomit. Second question is, you know, you you talked about the process you and your team underwent to um, intentionally push back against the injustices, the voting injustices that your campaign suffered from, right? Uh, contrasted against the Trump administration's months-long um fabrication campaign, right? He had been gassing up his base, riling up his base for months in advance saying election is going to be rigged. Let's steal it back or don't let them steal it or whatever kind of nonsensical mantras they had going. Um, And all of his cases were thrown out of court. And you had mentioned in a previous interview that we've kind of like normalized, um, you know, how are we going to handle Trump challenging the election as though it's even an option? Like if he is not elected, whether he accepts it or not, whether he concedes the race to Biden or not, he's got to go. Um, so I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well. And then the third word vomit question is, I'd really like to understand your view. Um, A, what what major formative experiences in your life defined your progressive politics or led you to progressive politics? And why, what is it that you think has seen the rise of so many people of color uh, being drawn to progressive politics and running on the progressive ticket over the past, I'd say, four to six years? I feel like prior to 2008, 2004, it wasn't really a thing. Um, But after Obama, and maybe it's hand in hand because of Trump's audacity. um, But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, too. Okay, let's try to, uh, I'll try to figure out a way to take these. So let's do the middle one first. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I was sick and tired of listening to people hand-wringing about whether or not Trump would accept the results of the election. It doesn't fucking matter. Once people vote, uh, the Constitution and democracy obliges us to count those votes fairly and then to assign electors to go vote in the Electoral College and make the next person president. And yet to this day, Donald Trump has not, quote unquote, acknowledged uh, Joe Biden's victory. And it doesn't matter. Joe Biden is in the White House because democracy dictates it. And our constitutional republic dictates it. And what I guess I was trying to say when I was watching um, all those you know, think pieces and stuff, it's like what you're doing is giving him an opening to question, pre-question the outcome of an election that he very well could have lost. 
Why even bother to do that? I think I have a lot of gripes about the media over the course of the Trump years and how much they enabled Trump by entertaining things that were pure falsehoods in the first place and thereby making them a question, right? It, it would be like saying, you know, having massive uh, television packages discussing how the earth is round because Trump said it was flat once. It would be absurd on its face. And I think the same should apply to um, falsehoods about this. So then in that, with that in context, I will say, how did I, you know, concede the race? Well, I mean, in our race, similarly, as we got closer and closer to the um, general election, we did want to be mindful of the precedent we were setting. But remember, and make no mistake, my battle to count votes is exactly the opposite of Donald Trump's battle to not count votes. And anyone who cynically conflated those two, including my opponent, um, was being Trumpy. And what we realized, though, is that after three months, thousands of dollars in legal fees, hundreds of hours of pouring through photocopies of ballots, like one at a time, and sitting there trying to fight this thing alone, that it just became unrealistic to keep going. And I have all these videos and, and I, you know, I, could, I wish I could share just sort of the stacks and stacks of paper and things that we went through to count those votes, how many manually we had to, uh, it almost felt like a banana republic, how many uh, photocopies from the Board of Elections of, of ballot uh, envelopes that were going to be rejected, how many we had to go through and count and, and do it. It was an absurd process unto itself. And I just thought, you know what, like there's no... Um, there's no legal recourse at some point and we will move on and we'll fight another day. And no doubt, um, you know, there, there's another day coming uh, for that fight. So, so, you know, we, we were like, we, we led, we reached the point at which we've decided that there really isn't much more you can do to count ballots that the laws were bad about. And I will say this, the state of New York for the November election changed laws dramatically. And, uh, they might as well be called Patel Maloney laws because it was all the stuff that we talked about, which is um, faulty ballot envelope design that made 10% of people forget the sign on the outside because it didn't have a big red X that said sign here to have your vote count. Well, the November ballots did. Same thing on the postmark, same thing on the inner envelope. And so in my election, 12, uh, 25% of ballots were rejected that were sent by mail. In the November election, that number dropped to 7%. Uh, still absurdly high, but significantly better. So, um, you know, like we, we knew that, that proactively it was important, but at the same time, it wasn't going to get anywhere um, in this way. Um, and then last question was, I can't remember what Progressive it was. politics. What, what drove you politics, to it? Yeah. And why do you think there's so many people of color being drawn to it as of late? Totally. I think that... Um, uh, Progressive politics, I'm drawn to it because, you know, progress, I think, for, for people like us, I think I alluded to it, it wasn't an option. I mean, I think watching, like I said, watching your family come here, watching your watching you progress through American society and everything from, you know, fitting in to income attainment to educational attainment. I mean, you are progressing from an underdog spot to somewhere. I think a lot of that is uh, gives you a lot of empathy and a lot more understanding of uh, what other people go through. And I think that necessarily gives you a progressive outlook, you know? Um, 
but there are a lot of other influences that I think made me progressive over the year, more and more progressive over the years. You're right. Barack Obama was the progressive in that 2008 primary against Hillary Clinton. We chose the progressive candidate. Um, we chose the one that was opposed to the Iraq war from the get-go. We chose the one, um, you know, that, that, that had a much more diplomatic uh, foreign policy rather than a war first one. Um, and so I know I got to watch that campaign firsthand. I got to be in, like I said, um, sort of on the, on the tip of the spear, the advanced person seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, black, white, brown, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, uh, lined up to see Barack Obama across the country. And I thought, wow, there is a, something very unifying about this hopeful, optimistic, progressive, unifying message. I think over time, um, yeah, people are like, people are drawn to progressive politics because I think we see what the world could be. I think we see, I think digital media and social media gives us a lot more ability to, to telegraph that um, and to build movements in a way that in 2004 and 2000, we didn't have, um, you'd need an inordinate amount of money to run campaigns in 2004, 2008, uh, when you had to buy television ads and that was about it. And I think that um, the democratization of campaign finance via small dollar donors and the democratization of being able to campaign using a significantly cheaper medium like digital media allows people that typically were left out of the political process to enter it. And so it isn't that people of color and others, I believe, are, are becoming more progressive. I think that it's, we're just, it's our coming out part to some extent. It's our first time being able to do this. Um, but I have other influences. I'm, per, I, you know, I'm a huge drama geek um, and really, really do uh, enjoy theater and stage and acting. And when you do scene study or when you're acting, I think you realize like, you know, you, you read a script or something and, and you really want to in, in, inhabit the person that you're trying to become. And that necessarily makes you, again, walking a mile in someone's shoes makes you more empathetic. It is no wonder that actors are some of the most sort of liberal forces or voices um, in our country. I think things like that affect me too. So speaking of things that affect us, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because of this whole GameStop controversy. I was talking to a friend of mine, shout out to Hersha Venkataraman, and we were trying to parse out this whole GameStop Reddit short-selling fiasco. Um, and he suggested that I join your, I think it was a, either a Twitter or your Instagram live, um, where you were explaining this in detail and trying and to make it accessible to people. Um, so I'd love if you could give a quick briefer to our listeners, but mainly me, um, on what exactly went down and why it's important that we pay attention to these kinds of things um, and what it really means. Because I think a lot of people uh, confuse the stock market for the economy and they're not the same thing. So I'd love to give you the floor f to explain that. Totally. Well, full disclosure, I mean, I this was something that I got very animated about. I did an Instagram live on it and a big explanation. And if I could do that, I would have charts up behind me to, to give you a little bit of a, a visual. Um, but we're doing a podcast. So I'll try to do this uh, via just audio. And this, by the way, is something that animates me for a variety of reasons. One is that I teach it. I teach about short selling and insider trading and market making and those kinds of things at NYU Stern. Um, and I think it's really important because- Go Violets. Are we still the Violets? <laughs> we are still the Violets. We're still yeah, the Violets. Yeah, that's absolutely. gotta change, but okay, sorry, go um, on. No, that's okay. So, so let's, I, I think it is important. And I think people should have a 
uh, base level knowledge of financial literacy and how the market works. I think that the way our economy is structured is one in which um, if you really want to get wealthy, actually wealthy, you have to figure out a way to, to build equity and ownership um, because that's just how it's been structured, right? And so home ownership or stock ownership or whatever. And we have to begin to democratize the ability of people to um, participate in that or else there will always be a class of people who own everything and then a bunch of people who work every single day um, and will never get to that level of sort of comfort. So, um, so to start, you know, uh, there's this thing called short selling, which you know, most people don't even think about. And that is the idea that while you can buy a stock and own it because you bet that it's going to go up in value over time, there are people who hedge funds primarily who also look at stocks across the world and across the country and bet that they will go down and they make their money that way. And it's, you know, and so, and so the way this works is that you, let's say you take a stock, a share of GameStop, and we're going to use even num smooth numbers just to make this easy. So these are imaginary, but let's say that the price of GameStop is $10 today. And you think as a short seller that the price is going to be uh, $5 in the next month. What you'll do is uh, borrow a share of GameStop right now, right? And uh, sell it back uh, in the future for the lower amount of money and make the delta, the, the difference between the 10 and the 5 that is then. What that obliges you to do at that point, though, since you borrowed a share, is to return the share. And what you're doing is you're assuming I'm going to return the share at a cheaper price. And what happened with GameStop is that at one point, hedge funds had bet over 100% of the stock available of GameStop um, that it was going to go down. So there are a lot of people who are going to contractually be obliged to owe a share of stock, let's call it on Friday. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so a lot of people sort of recognize that on, and started discussing it on Wall Street bets on Reddit uh, and on Twitter and places like that. And they said, what if we all just start buying up game, uh, GameStop shares so that the price will rise? And as the price rises, these hedge funds are obliged to buy this share from me at a higher price because they have an obligation to turn in that share um, on Friday. That is what's called... Uh, short squeeze. So instead of the price of the sh uh, by Friday going down from 10 to 5, the price went up from 10 to 15. Now the hedge fund has just lost $5 per share. And that kind of avalanched into the price going up forever almost, uh, it seemed, from $5 to 10 to 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 to I think at 350 at some point, something like that. And I think one thing for like a couple minutes. Yeah, it's insane. Right. And one thing, one thing about this is that as a person investing, remember this, always remember this. When you sell, uh, when you buy a share of stock, your losses are limited to the value of the stock. If I buy $10,000 of GameStop at $10 and GameStop in the worst case scenario goes out of business, goes bankrupt, and there's no residual money left over, you've lost your 10,000 bucks. Convert, contrast that with a short seller where your losses aren't stopped at the, how much you invested. Your losses can be infinite. And that's what makes short selling 
so risky is that you can make money short selling, but at some point you can lose an infinite amount of money, theoretically. And so regular people shouldn't do it. And there's even a question about the value of short selling and profiting off other people's misery in ways that um, you know, I personally find unethical and I'm not a big fan of. In Germany, you can't short sell uh, for a lot of equities, including financial institutions and life insurance companies because it hastens their demise. And then it becomes systemic and you have to bail these companies out just like we did in TARP. Uh, Japan um, has significant restrictions on short selling. And the United States of America needs to consider um, serious regulation around naked, uncovered short selling like this because you know, um, it, 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 in some cases, it, it actually hastens the downfall of something. Say you're GameStop and in the pan or AMC, let's take a movie theater company, AMC, right? You got a pandemic. They literally can't be open across the country, which means you've got this company that's stuck in the middle, a movie theater company that people love, movies. And coming out of a pandemic, it would be okay. And we can all assume sort of once they get through this, people will return to the movie theaters. And there'll be all these movies that we all want to watch that have been held off. And I'm, I'm, I know myself, like I will be doing that a lot. Um, but short sellers have shorted that stock up to 70, 80% of the float, making the stock price drop to like $4 a share, making it nearly impossible for AMC to get loans or raise money or sell equity to rescue themselves. And it becomes a self-perpetuating thing because the way the financial in, uh, institutions sort of bet against it, we might take a real life brick and mortar company with employees and pensions and all those things and just run it into the ground and destroy it. And I think that that's fundamentally a problem um, that prioritizes the financial services industry's profits for a small number of people over the well-being of significantly large numbers of people and their employment and their life savings and things like that. So I am, you know, encouraged by, you know, and, and then a lot more happened, by the way. What happened is that um, it seems that we don't know the truth yet, but we know that in the middle of the GameStop short squeeze, um, Robinhood and other uh, trading apps stopped allowing you to buy the shares. And forcing somebody to sell but not buy in an illiquid market is the most unfree market, uncapitalist, un-American thing I've ever heard of from the people who typically talk about how awesome the free market is. And so I call bullshit on the way that went down, which allowed a bunch of hedge funds to unwind their short positions and not fall down. And I truly hope that there is an investigation, congressional inquiry and whatnot into who called um, the shots on, on stopping uh, the ability to buy these shares. What I think is especially interesting about that Robinhood piece is that app was literally created on the premise of giving retail investors more say in the market and then literally punishing them for doing so. I mean, talk about epitome of market manipulation, epitome, textbook market manipulation. And then the way to go back to your point about how ludicrous the media has behaved over the past several years, the media spin on this crazed redditors you know take take a wrong gamble it's it's wild it's wild it's really really wild um suraj you're on mute or i can't hear you is it just me i can't hear you oh sorry i muted okay unmute. there you are <laughs> can you hear me okay great 
Yeah, to your point, I think one thing that I said specifically in the aftermath of GameStop thing is that we desperately need a financial media that isn't uh, fully controlled and or only viewed by the financial services industry. Right now, I mean, my Twitter feed is full of, first off, I don't use Twitter um, because I think it's, it's a very toxic and terrible place. But during that saga, I wanted to look at sort of what people say. I barely post. Um, and, and, you know, I've got a bunch of political reporters who are like, you know, all of it was like, Hey, somebody explain the GameStop thing. Somebody explain the GameStop thing. Da, 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 da. And the only people explaining the GameStop thing were CNBC reporters, you know what I mean? And so you don't really get, um, you need some, you need an independent financial, you need an independent media that has financial literacy, certainly to be reporting on some of these things as well. I, I firmly believe that in the aftermath of this. I mean, I think that it was, um, you know, most people still don't understand what really happened there or uh, have a good unbiased or un- neutral view. And I'm, I'm not one who says that like, oh, you know, everybody that, that was in on the GameStop craze was some retail investor in their basement with their life savings. I mean, we all know that there were institutional players on this side too. So that's, you know, that's clearly not um, fair to, to say, but um you know, there just isn't enough understanding out there to report on these issues with authority. And then the only people that have the authority have quite a singular bias. Suresh, what's next for you? Are we going to see you on the ballot again? Are we going to see you as an independent financial reporter? What's next on oh, your crazy journey? Good questions. Good questions. Um, certainly, uh, I don't think that was my last political race. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty around. Um, sort of, you know, for Congress, there's a lot of uncertainty. This year is the census year. So we'll see redistricting happening um, over the course of the year. And we'll see new district lines next year and or later this year. And that'll that'll dictate, you know, what what that looks like. Um, most certainly, I think I'm obviously very active in my community, in my district, and I'm still very active in holding accountable um, the incumbent in my district. So no doubt that um, you know, I'm strongly considering uh, running again, even though it seems so crazy to do that a third time to yourself um, and to your family. Um, but, but certainly, like you know, that's that's up there. Um, I'm currently working on a book, uh, you know, that that sort of ties together some of the issues we talked about, frankly, um, and then a few other projects. And uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you, having done this for three years and in a pandemic. Uh, a lot of my focus has been on my family um, and our company is hospitality. So we are really um, like so many Americans kind of figuring out what the hell to do, how to make ends meet, how to keep people on payroll um, and how to come out of this the other side. And so a lot of my time over the last few months has been frankly uh, inward facing, but that's by necessity. And I think, you know, that, that people forget that. I think that um, for most of us, you can't, you got to make, you know, you can't just be a full-time candidate or activist or a political person. Like there are realities that sink in. Um, and certainly I'm no different from anybody else in that regard, you know, but, um, but yeah, coming out of this, I think, you know, I'll, I'll very stay tuned, but I think that we will um, be able to make some news here again soon. So Sudaj, this is something that we ask all of our guests, but I'd love to know what lessons you've learned um through the pandemic. Um, it's been such a challenging time for so many people. Um, so I'd love to know what you 
what surprised you? What's the thing that you're never going to take for granted? Um, and what are you going to make sure that you continue to do uh, once we're out of this? Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy year for all of us. And I think, you know, pandemic clearly put, put a lot of things, um, uh, had us questioning a lot of our priorities and everything. I think uh, with my race, it was it was a really difficult one in a sense that I think we did, we ran re- just a remarkable, uh, my team did just such a remarkable job and it was pretty heartbreaking to come out the other side of that thing, um, having known that we left everything out on the field and, um, you, you know, with the circumstances, it just wasn't enough. But I also recognized the, um, uh, that, that, that there's, there's so much out there that matters. I think missing on social interaction in person with people, meeting strangers and talking to people again, it's all going to be so, I think, exciting and and uh, energizing when that happens again um i think it's really important to then uh take stock of what we just went through which was sort of which which is still going on obviously uh a pretty intense period in trauma but what i will say is that i I think this year is going to serve as a reminder i'm going to be i've written a lot of it down um about when when we do come back like not to take some of these things for granted not to take your, you know, weddings and birthday parties and, and all those things for granted ever again, I think, um, having missed it for so, for so long. It's that simple, you know? I know a really obnoxious over the top 500 person Indian wedding is sounding pretty good right about now. Pretty good. Oh, love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Faiza, what are your lessons learned? Uh, I think for me, from this episode in particular, of course, is the importance of financial literacy um, because it's so easy for us to throw our hands up in the air and walk away, but this stuff is really important and it makes a huge impact, especially as people of color who are you know, disproportionately impacted by the labor market and the economy. Um, and then the other thing is media literacy. I feel like that's something that has just gone by the wayside with the rise of just like social media and how misinformation spreads so quickly. And I think I feel like media literacy especially has led to the rise of Trump because nobody's thinking critically about the news that they consume. Uh, and it's still happening, right? The media hasn't really learned their lesson because we're still hearing about Trump and what he's doing and how he's behaving or, or giving platforms to people crazy conservatives, uh, QAnon supporters, um, and giving them the floor. And then, but we're also just consuming it, right? Why would they stop if we, if we're still like hanging on to every word of these crazy peoples and this despot? Um, so I think that's something that I realize is just like critically important as we move forward, financial literacy for sure. And then media literacy, just being very mindful of, of the type of media we're consuming. And then also just like fact checking, and using our brains to make sure that what we're reading is actually true, um, which, I mean, takes a lot of effort, but is, is worth it. Um, but what about you, Mick? What's your lesson learned? My big takeaway from this conversation is, um, as corny as it sounds, there's beauty in the breakdown. So I loved when you were talking about the victory laps you and your team are still taking, despite the really disappointing loss, especially in 2020. Um, the fact that you see policies coming out that 
are similar, if not identical to the ones you were championing, or even something as small as speaking of things we take for granted, what a difference correct graphic design of a voting envelope makes on votes being eligible and being counted. So, you know, hats off to you. Agreed. 7% is still not acceptable, yeah. but down from a quarter, you know, of the votes, that's incredible. So I, I'm proud of you and your team. And I hope you guys are proud of yourselves for making, you know, people get into politics mostly to affect change in society and to leave a legacy. And goddamn, if that's not an amazing legacy to leave, right? That we made it easier for votes to be counted. So that's my big takeaway because I'm very much somebody who has no patience ever and, you know, does not like failing at things. So um, proud of you for running in 2018. Proud of you for doing it again in 2020. And love to hear that it's not off the table again i you know salute your perseverance and we're rooting for you man i appreciate violets it violets all the way violets Sarita, all the way you know yeah I mean? yeah absolutely I would fighting violets gotta fight that's right that's right <laughs> so Sudaj, where can people find you yeah so please um you can follow me on uh all the social channels instagram twitter tiktok um, at Suraj Patel NYC. And my website is surajpatel.nyc. Um, I am a big Instagram user. I think we do a lot of Instagram lives, a lot of videos, uh, talking about current events and things like that. That's my preferred medium. So um, find us there. Awesome, Suraj. Thank you again for making time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. We look forward to exciting announcements coming from your campaign or your future campaign, fingers crossed. Uh, for everybody tuning in, thanks for joining. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can check us out on Instagram at The Fundamentalist for the latest episodes, behind the scenes, and more. And you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.